1: Weird fiction typified by magazines like Weird Tales and writers like H.P. Lovecraft or Clark Ashton Smith back in the glory days of the pulps, eventually morphed into modern-day traditional horror. Weird refers to the sometimes supernatural or fantastical element of unease in many of these stories, an element that could take a blunt, literal form or more subtle and symbolic form and which was, as in the best of Lovecraft's work, combined with a visionary sensibility. These types of stories also often rose above their pulp or self-taught origins through the strength of the writer's imagination. There are definite parallels to be drawn between certain kinds of pulp fiction and so-called outsider art. Two impulses or influences distinguish the new weird from the old weird and make the term more concrete than terms like slipstream and interstitial, which have no distinct lineage. The new wave of the 1960s was the first stimulus leading to the new weird. Featuring authors such as M. John Harrison, Michael Moorcock, and J.G. Ballard, the new wave deliriously mixed genres high and low art and engaged in formal experimentation, often typified by a distinctly political point of view. New Wave writers also often blurred the line between science fiction and fantasy, writing a kind of updated sci-fantasy first popularized by Jack Vance in his Dying Earth novels. This movement, backed by two of its own influences, Mervyn Peake and the decadence of the late 1800s, provided what might be thought of as the brain of New Weird. The second stimulus came from the unsettling grotesquerie of such seminal 1980s work as Clive Barker's Books of Blood. In this kind of fiction, body transformations and dislocations create a visceral, contemporary take on the kind of visionary horror best exemplified by the work of Lovecraft, while moving past Lovecraft's coyness in recounting events in which the monster or horror can never fully be revealed or explained. In many of Barker's best tales, the starting point is the acceptance of a monster or a transformation, and the story is what comes after. Transgressive horror, then, repurposed to focus on the monsters and grotesquerie, but not the scare, forms the beating heart of the new weird. In a sense, the simultaneous understanding of and rejection of old weird, hardwired to the stimuli of the new wave and new horror, gave many of the writers identified as New Weird the signs and symbols needed to both forge ahead into the unknown and create their own unique recombinations of familiar elements.
2: New Weird is a type of urban, secondary world fiction that subverts the romanticized ideas about place found in traditional fantasy, largely by choosing realistic, complex, real-world models as the jumping-off point for creation of settings that may combine elements of both science fiction and fantasy new weird has a visceral in the moment quality that often uses elements of surreal or transgressive horror for its tone style and effects in combination with the stimulus of influence from new wave writers or their proxies new weird fictions are acutely aware of the modern world even if in disguise but not always overtly political as part of this awareness of the modern world New Weird relies for its visionary power on a surrender to the weird that isn't, for example, hermetically sealed in a haunted house on the moors or in a cave in Antarctica. The surrender or belief of the writer can take many forms, some of them even involving the use of postmodern techniques that do not undermine the surface reality of the text.
1: This definition presents two significant ways in which the new weird can be distinguished from slipstream or interstitial fiction. First, while slipstream and interstitial fiction often claim new wave influence, they rarely if ever cite a horror influence with its particular emphasis on the intense use of grotesquerie focused around transformation, decay, or mutilation of the human body. Second, Postmodern techniques that undermine the surface reality of the text or point out its artificiality are not part of the new weird aesthetic, but they are part of the slipstream and interstitial toolbox.
2: Anne and I still have reservations about the term new weird, but in our readings, research, and conversations, we have come to believe the term has a core validity. The proof is that it has taken on an artistic and commercial life beyond that intended by those individuals who in their inquisitiveness about a moment unintentionally created a movement. It is still mutating forward through the work of a new generation of writers as well.
1: Finally, anyone who reads the initial New Weird discussions will find that the term arose from a sense of curiosity, of play, of sometimes bloody-minded mischievousness, and from a love of fiction. We offer up this anthology in the spirit of the best of that original discussion, New Weird is Dead.
0: Long live the next weird. Anne Vandermeer is the award-winning publisher and editor of Buzz City Press. She's now the fiction editor for Weird Tales. Jeff Vandermeer is the founder and co-editor of the Ministry of Whimsy Press. He's the two-time winner of the World Fantasy Award and the author of City of Saints and Man Men and Shriek and Afterword. Their new anthology, Collecting Fiction and Criticism, is the new Weird. Thank you for joining me, Anne and Jeff.
1: Thanks for having us. Yes,
0: thanks. Let's talk a little bit about what it means to have a literary movement. What makes The New Weird a literary movement as opposed to just another marketing label?
1: Well, I think one of the reasons why you could consider it a literary movement is that a lot of writers were talking about it before it became a marketing term. They knew something strange was happening and they knew something was going on, but they weren't really sure quite what it is. So the discussions is what created the movement.
2: Yeah, and um, and and I think in our research, it's quite clear that from the mid-90s on, especially in the short story form, there was this hybrid form of literature in genre that could be classified as proto-new-weird or new-weird. And it shares the same characteristics as in the definition in our introduction. Um, so although it became a marketing term, it became a tool as soon as there were enough writers accreted around the term or associated around the term. And, and by associate, I mean, there were readers who associated certain writers as New Weird, there were critics who did, there was some overlap between those two, but it wasn't always the same. So when it became a marketing term, it became broader, because with the success of like China Mayville's Perdido C- Street Station, or even to some extent, on a more cult level, my own city of Saints and Madmen*, there was a little bit of a, not a rush, but an idea on publishers, uh, from publishers, and especially editors who were sympathetic to this kind of work that they could use the term to make sure that these books got out to a wider audience or or these authors. And in fact, that's what happened. I mean, like K.J. Bishop's The Etch City, which is a seminal work of what you'd call New Weird, was originally published by an independent publisher
0: and then was picked up by Bantam later. And the same thing with my own City of Saints and Madmen. One thing that that I find really interesting is the part that different players have in creating a genre like this, there's obviously the writers are important, but also we have editors, publishers, booksellers, readers, people who run internet websites. Could you talk about how some of these different factors come in to help create the new weird?
2: Well, I think um, it was driven home to us the most, actually, when we um, did a five-week tour of Europe. Um, I had books coming out in various countries, and we went over there in support of that. And we went to like seven countries. And in most of them, there was some version of New Weird. And it was strange because initially it was this impulse that came from outside, that came from England and the U.S., but it also had then resulted in homegrown New Weird, and it had resulted in a marketing label, but also in a variation or a mutation of the same kind of literary movement. And so when it was when we saw that effect that had occurred that we began to think, well, this is actually a valid term because it exists outside of what the initial people who discussed it um, thought of as New Weird and also their own reservations about New Weird. I think actually what you're talking about to some extent is the fact that the Internet has made discussion more immediate. Like, for example, the original New Weird discussion would normally have taken place over two or three years, which probably would have been a better thing because everyone would have gotten over the the heat of the moment, a lot of objections to the new weird were not just aesthetic. They were about ownership. They were about, I don't want to be labeled by someone else. I don't know what the effects of that will be. Well, if that had occurred over time, that would have been fine. But it happened in this two-month period on a message board. And so it wasn't until several years have gone by, you know, that was 2003, that it's actually possible to do an anthology like this to kind of get the context, to get actually away from what I would call the white noise of that, because wh- when you're in the middle of this thing, you can't really see what it is or what its effects will be. And at the time, I thought it might actually be a bad thing. Now I think it's either a good or an indifferent thing in terms of a writer's career. It's not like being labeled as new weird is going to stop me from doing other kinds of things. Um, but at the time, that was the the kind of... the feeling among some writers is it would be a limiting term. In, in actual fact, it's, it's helped a ton of writers um, in terms of being connected to other writers as well. And, and one of the things that I love about this anthology is there are so many beginning writers that have come up to Anne and to me or emailed and said, we love that this thing is out because we didn't know some of this stuff existed because 2003, <laughs> again by Internet terms, is 100 years ago.
0: <laughs> Anne, could you talk about your trip to Europe and who, where specifically you went and who specifically you met and what they told you?
1: Well, do you have about three or four hours? No, just (laughs) kidding. Um, Well, we started off in Portugal. Jeff had a book coming out there and was actually – what was quite interesting to me is the way that that they approach a book launch differently than the way we do it here in in the United States. When we have a a book launch and a signing, usually you have the author reading. Well, when we went to Portugal, here we were set up to do um, a a signing for Jeff's book in a bookstore 10 o'clock at night in a mall, which I thought was really cool. And it wasn't a reading. It was the publisher, the editor, and another editor, and Jeff sitting on a panel. And they would do their discussions and their presentations. And then they would present Jeff. And then he signed books, instead of having Jeff do a reading, which is what we thought it was going to be. So we started off in Portugal. From there, we went to France. Jeff had another book coming out in France.
0: Did the people in, in Portugal say, did you meet editors who were interested in the new weird and said this is kind of what I'm publishing I I I like that kind of movement
1: well it portugal has a really small science fiction fantasy um it's it's not as large as some of the other other countries um from there from there we went on to france which there was a lot larger group there and jeff's works actually being published in mainstream over in France. So, so it was different in every single country where we went to, and the difference is the way they approached it. From from France, we went on to Germany, and then from Germany to the Czech Republic, and from there to Romania, and Romania to Finland. In between, we stopped in Belgium, but that was just to drink beer.
0: When you were on this trip, did you meet people who were, you know, talking about Jeff's work or the, the work that you'd published in, in a manner that made you think that the New Weird had migrated there without having or just grown up there of its own accord.
1: Well, I think that the place that we saw that the most prominent was in the Czech Republic we, we, when we were in Prague. When we met there with um, Jeff's editor, Martin Sust, they actually had a line of books that were labeled New Weird, and most of them were writers that were coming from the United States or England, but they were also promoting writers that were coming from the Czech Republic. And to them, it was it was um, a very exciting time for them, and um, that's where I saw the most prominence of that term, New Weird. In Finland, it meant something completely different. They they looked at it in a, in, a, in a different way, and their their fiction tended more towards the environmental aspects of um, science fiction and fantasy. So so we saw it being approached differently in every single country.
2: Well, I think in the Czech Republic, um, the term New Weird had actually um, allowed them not only to create this line of books, but to use that um, as a way of promoting um Actual writers from the Czech Republic, and the same thing occurred in Romania. Their new weird line allowed them to publish other work like that by writers from that country, and so it it served this purpose of kind of a cross pollination. Of they had a line that for the first time, because actually it's kind of difficult sometimes in some of those European countries for the writers from those countries to get published. It provided protection for those writers to get published um, stuff that was similar in terms of secondary world, more literary fantasy and especially in the czech republic it was actually single-handedly kind of revitalizing the scene Um, we're actually going to a conference we've been invited to a convention in prague um or actually in czech republic in august and it's all new weird writers that have been invited um and and that that kind of to to us showed that it had a had had an influence beyond that And in france and germany there was an influence but not an actual line of books being created by that not an actual imprint
0: you mentioned in France that your work was published as, as mainstream fiction. That's really interesting.
2: Well, uh, it, what's interesting about that is, well, I mean, it, it kind of happens all over the place. It's um, I'm either published as genre or I'm published as mainstream literary for the most part, depending on the publishing structure of the country. And in France, um, they thought that City of Saints and Madmen would appeal to the same people who like like Daniel Lewski's House of Leaves or Salman Rushdie or Michael Chabon. And so that's that was the rationale for publishing it as uh, mainstream literary because they were thinking of it as more as Italo-Calvino-Borges type fantasy.
0: Let, let's talk a little bit about this anthology, which is really interesting. And I think it's interesting not just for the fiction, but I, for me what's most interesting is, is the nonfiction. And your opening essay—you've written lots of essays, Jeff—and they're usually pretty playful. And you know, they—you'll have lots of metafictional references to your favorite playthings, squids, and, and ambergris, and marmots, and uh, meerkats. This essay was was not playful. This was a very scholarly uh, opening. And, and do you feel that we're looking at something that academics will be looking at?
2: Well, we structured. I think Ann and I, when we sat down to to talk about how we're going to structure it we wanted to structure this anthology in such a way that it could be read as a survey of New Weird, that it could be used by academics, but that it could also be of very much of interest to general readers. And so it's 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 uh, structured uh, first with uh, the introduction and then a stimuli section that kind of includes influences that led to New Weird and then an evidence section that is actual evidence of <laughs> New Weird, actual stories that are New Weird stories, and then a symposium section that includes more, some of them are academic essays, some are like this K.J. Bishop's essay, Whose Words You Wear, and that's the writer's perspective, her her writer's perspective on New Weird. There's European editor perspectives on the New Weird in that section, and then there is a scholarly essay, more, more of one, uh, Tracking Phantoms by Darja Malcolm Clark, um, and then a laboratory section where we had um, all these authors kind of do their riff on New Weird, even though the authors we got were not New Weird authors, they were kind of on the fringes of it. We wanted to see how they would would look at it. But yeah, we definitely thought that this could be, if we structured it correctly, an anthology for general readers and academics.
1: We, we were not focused on trying to make this something that academics would be looking at. It just kind of happened that way. We were just looking to make the best anthology we could, and we wanted to capture as much as we could in a single place. So you might see some um, contradictions in here between the different writers as far as what their viewpoints are, and that's what we wanted because I think that, that the the healthiest part of the new weird moment is the um, discussion and people defining what it is, what it means to them, and taking that that passion for it and moving it into different directions. So that's, that's why you'll see the breakdowns that we have here. And I think that's also one of the reasons why in, in Jeff's introduction, when, when, when he approached it, he did take it seriously. Yes, I know in the past, he's done a lot of playful things with his nonfiction and, and as well as with his fiction, but, but he considered this to be something serious and to be approached that way and, and um, because a lot of people had strong opinions about it.
0: I, one of the seminal influences you mentioned is New Wave SF, and I think we can say that is in fact really a, a genre that exists because we're talking about it some 40 years after it first flowered. Could you tell, de- describe what was New Wave SF and who created it? How did it get that tag? How did it become something that we now still talk about now?
2: Well, that was a kind of unique situation because you had all these writers who were basically living in London who were in connection with one another. There were other writers connected to the movement outside of that, but like J.G. Ballard and M. John Harrison and uh, Michael Moorcock, writers like that, were all pretty much in the same physical location. Um, Much in a way like the New Weird discussion started because there you had writers in the same physical location on the internet, in a sense. But New Wave was basically a cross-genre effort to... Mix in literary impulses and experimental impulses into science fiction and fantasy and to blur the lines between science fiction, fantasy, and horror. And these people took their genre fiction seriously. They thought this could be an art form. There's always been this tension in genre fiction between the origins in pulp magazines and things like that, kind of a commercial origin, and the impulse to make great art. I mean, that's what our best writers do. And every once in a while, something pops up where you have a group of writers who commit seriously to thinking about genre as art, and that's what happened. Something like The New Wave, something like New Weird, something to some extent like cyberpunk, although that also was very much influenced by shifts in technology. Um, so, so New Wave wanted to blur lines. These guys would do anything. They would do all kinds of different kinds of fiction, and they would, uh, I mean, different kinds of combinations within, within genre. And I think that's also why so many of them now are brand names, in a sense. J.G. Ballard used to be published as a science fiction fantasy writer, and that's not true anymore. Same thing, to some extent, for some of Michael Moorcock's work. And I think you'll see the same thing with New Weird. Like K.J. Bishop, who I keep referring to. She's not working on a fantasy novel right now. She's working on a mainstream literary novel. And I think that's one thing that also binds all these writers together. We have some of the best stylists in the world in this anthology when you think of a rich, descriptive, muscular style. And when you have stylists like that, they can do anything. They can be anything.
0: One th- another seminal influence you, you mentioned is Clive Barker and his body horror uh, fiction of the, of the 1980s. And, and an important key component of that and something that I'm really interested in is Sympathy for the Monster.
1: Well, I don't know if it's so much sympathy for the monster as it is acceptance of the monster. One of the things that I think that that Barker did so well and the way that he changed horror at that time is that he took a look at it in such a way that, oh, well, this is just natural and normal, and this is the way things are, instead of it being here's a nice, normal world, and then all of a sudden something weird happens. The way that he turned things around is that he took all that weirdness and made that the standard and the norm, and that's just the the way that the world is. And he looked at it that way, and, and that, that, I think, really was a jumping-off point for the kind of horror that was coming out then. I mean, I was a, I was a huge fan of all the horror novels. I used to go down to the bookstore once a week, go to the horror section, which there was a big one back back in those days, and just buy everything. But after a while, it started to be the same old, same old, same old. But when Clive Barker came around, I think that really changed a lot for the horror field.
0: One of the ways that you create a movement is through is through editing. I, I'm thinking of Michael Moorcock and New. Uh, Orbit and New Worlds anthologies that he he edited that really helped define New Wave. and you edited The Silver Web. Could you talk about editing as a means of helping to focus a, a literary movement?
1: Well, I have to be, be honest with you, Rick. At the time that I was doing The Silver Web, I wasn't really thinking about creating some kind of movement or direction. or I just wanted to do something different with my magazine. When I first came out with the magazine, I was publishing a little bit of everything, but I didn't really have a focus. And then I realized that I needed to actually have a focus in order for it to be viable. And at that time, I had met a wonderful artist by the name of Alan Clark, and he introduced me to surrealism. And that was just kind of a jumping-off point for me, and I started to look at fiction in a different way because... I loved all the traditional stuff that I was reading, but I was ready for something more, something that was more of a challenge for me. So I started to look for that kind of fiction, and then I started to publish it. And my magazine matched the surreal fiction, yet still accessible fiction, with very, very surreal art. So I kind of took those two things and made what I thought was an an art, art and fiction magazine.
2: And you definitely had a horror element to a lot of the stuff that you were doing, but it wasn't traditional horror.
1: Right. What I was publishing was definitely more on the dark side, but I didn't publish work that was so experimental that you couldn't understand it. Because I feel like if you're going to take those kinds of chances and uh, do things in that kind of a way, especially if you're coming from a surreal background, you have to have something that's grounded that people can grab a hold of, and it has to have some kind of an emotional impact in order for it to succeed. Doing something experimental just for the sake of experimentalism just turns me off.
2: Well, I think also a lot of the projects we were doing in the 90s and early uh, part of this century, um, they didn't really have a parallel in other projects by other publishers because a lot of people were focusing on what you call slipstream, which is a kind of cross-genre that really doesn't have much of a horror element because horror is seen as being kind of this debased art form or or debased genre that, that doesn't necessarily have literary value, and yet there are all these classics that I love that are horror-based, you know, starting, obviously, with things like the Books of Blood, which I think are very literary in their way. Um, and you, I think you see this sometimes at the turns of centuries. You see people turning to the forgotten and the kinds of things that have been abandoned, like the decadence back in the turn of the, uh, at the end of the 18th century. I think there's a definite parallel there between that and New Weird because those writers were also doing stuff that at times was, shock, were, was shocking or was making readers uncomfortable. Um, But it also led to some of the great um, influence, some of the greatest symbolist writers that came afterwards in France and England. And I think New Weird is going to have the similar effect because you already see a New Weird influence in like the new um, heroic fantasy novel that Richard K. Morgan has coming out, Um, or or uh, Joe Abercrombie. So you see these effects of it's okay to do this. It's okay to be more literary in genre. And I think in part it is a result of of things like The New Weird.
0: It it interests me that you're talking about the uh, effects and influences because I think that one of the things that really defines a a marketing label, uh, separates a marketing label uh, from a a literary movement is the ability of a literary movement to influence those outside of of the genre. Well, I
2: think... That's kind of, I mean, if you go back to the original discussions about New Weird, that was the idea. And it was kind of a crazy idea in a way, because a lot of this stuff is secondary world fantasy. It's set in a place other than the earth that we know. And the literary mainstream has a real problem with that. They have a, they're have they fine with it if it's elves and dwarves and stuff like that, and it's in the commercial pop culture sphere. They're not as fine with it if you're trying to do something literary with it, with a secondary world setting. And so a lot of the writers in that discussion thought of this as a way into the literary mainstream, a way into respectability. Um, And it wasn't that they were aiming for that. It wasn't like they were writing the stuff and they were thinking that that was what was going to get them the in. It's just that they thought, wow, if we actually just really write our hearts out, do exactly what we want to do in this amazing prose style, that should get us the attention we deserve. And it has
0: for some writers. And could you talk about the seminal influence of one of the works you mentioned here, uh, Perdido Street Station by China Mieville? It really kind of came out of nowhere, although it was his second novel.
1: Well, that, that particular novel, I think, changed the way people looked at things because it was, again, a secondary world fantasy, but it wasn't like a Tolkien kind of fantasy, it was more urban, and I think that that's one of the main things right there is that that urban element, the grittiness, the noirness, and and um, and yet it 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 put it into uh, a place where those of us in, in modern day could connect to it, and I think that's one of the 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 things that China did. In addition to that, he is a fantastic writer, and the way that he. On a line-by-line level, his his prose is very strong, very dense, and I think that's different than you see from a lot of other secondary world fantasies. So that made it different, and um, of course, China comes also from from a political background. So you could definitely see that without it knocking you over the head with his politicism. So those elements right there, that secondary world, having having that that dense prose style that he brought to it, and also making it urban and and appealing to the modern reader.
2: And and he wedded it, I think, to to very earnest, believable characters, and and plots that were more like Charles Dickens or something like that. And I think the plots actually are what allow readers outside of genre to get into them. Because they're not so much about the normal kind of science fiction fantasy plots that you see there. They are more of a
0: throwback to 19th century literature to some extent. So let, let's talk about some of the specific elements. Um, the new weird want, likes an urban setting or at least two parts of the portions of the text want to transpire in an urban setting.
1: Right. As opposed to being in a rural setting on a farm or, you know, out in the country or small villages.
0: Yeah, the
2: quests usually, such as they occur, would be within the city itself. And there's there's usually an interplay between a, a wide variety of characters within a city structure. Um, and um, urban, it's, and it, it's always, and all the examples that we saw that, w- that really kind of fit the idea of a new weird definition, they were all still not set on Earth. They were set in some fantastical science fictional kind of other place. Um, and a lot of them, we felt, really were... C- were making comments about the real world, that they weren't using the fantasy to escape, but they were using it to talk about the real world, but more from a distance. And I, I know that's true in my own work. I've always, I've always felt when I was writing secondary world fantasy that, that it gave me the distance necessary to talk about the real world, kind of like a reflection or a mirror, at the same time that, obviously, a place like Amigris has its own reality. And I guess the parallel you'd make is that for some writers, if you're writing about some intensely personal event your own life, you need time in order to think about it before you can actually write about it in fiction. And in a sense, writing about the world um, or world events or things that are happening, you get that that time or that distance by not setting it in the real world, by being one remove away from it. Um, you know, the, the last Ambergris novel that I had out, there was something comparable to global warming. There was something comparable to the Iraq war. I could not have written about those things in the real world. I couldn't have written a contemporary novel. I wouldn't have had the the distance and the time to think about it. Um, But it's kind of a a shorthand way or a shortcut way sometimes to be able to write about these things effectively.
1: I think also you'll find that in most cases that urban setting, there's been a breakdown in the... um, in the society. There's some kind of decay there. Things aren't working the way they're supposed to be working. So when we talk about a secondary world urban setting, we're not talking about a bright, shiny city. We're not talking about Oz.
2: Or a medieval type influenced place.
1: Right. I mean, it's definitely stuff is not going well. And it's modern. Right. Very modern, but not in a futuristic spaceship kind of a way, but definitely um, the technologies are there, and, but, but not so far removed that you can't recognize it.
0: Also, I think that we, you've talked about the political slant. Most of this fiction includes a, a political slant, and it's generally progressive, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I, I, I think you probably would say that. I, I, I don't really, I haven't thought about it that way. But, but you're right. It is, is more on a progressive, more left leaning side. I haven't really seen. I can't point to anything that goes in the other direction.
2: I can't I mean I think actually you'd find among most genre writers that
0: most are coming from the center or left for the most part. Could you why are these writers including uh the political aspects in uh works that are set not even in our, our own reality and how are they doing well,
1: that? I I think that they're doing that because that's an that's probably the best way for them to be able to do that without becoming so dogmatic. I think also that um, there are so many things to be concerned about in today's world, and and we're all so much more aware of the wider world today than maybe our parents were because of the the effect of the internet and how quickly information travels. That we know what's going on across the world. We know the things that we're facing, all the wars, the poverty, disease, and and you know just global warming, et cetera, et cetera. And and I think for a lot of these writers, that the, their creativity and and the way that they look at the world allows them to take those those issues and and address them without having it be, you know, hit like I said before hitting you over the head with 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 their their opinions. And and when when they bring it forth to you in a, in a work of fiction, you're reading along and you're seeing all this beautiful prose, wonderful things getting into the characters and by the time you're done, you have no idea that they gave you all their political opinions. Well,
2: sometimes you do. It just
1: it just kind of happened. Well, it just kind of happened because they were able to do it in such a way that it wasn't that recognizable.
2: But but what I'd add on to Anne's comment really is, I think fantasy in general and New Weird maybe even more so, it's that fantasy element that allows you to get away with it because these stories are dark but they're not necessarily depressing. And I think that um, if you were to take some of the same approaches to the politics and some of the stories in here in a realistic, you know, story set in the present day, that kind of local color that's provided by the fantasy, it would just be too stark. You know, there's a point at which it becomes too stark and too one-dimensional. And I, and I think that the fantasy element, and I've always felt this way about M. John Harrison's work. I, I really love his mainstream work as well as his genre work, but it's in the fantasy that he gets away with some of his starkest and most
0: nihilistic ideas because he he has these other things that the reader can kind of look at at the same time. If if the new weird is indeed a a literary movement and not just a a subgenre or a marketing term, could you talk about some of the, I think one of the, the benchmarks for measuring this is how it influences new writers, that, that somebody comes along and says, you know, I was, I've been reading all these things that are new, weird, and I want to do something like that. Could you talk about some of the, the writers who have been influenced by this?
2: Well, I think that, um, first of all, we have, to th- we have to understand that the term itself has only been around since 2003, which means the main writers that are going to be influenced by this that the possible juggernauts that are going to come out of this are still beginning writers. (laughs) Um, But to the extent that there are people who say they've been directly influenced, um, I think that a writer like Jay Lake, who is right now set to kind of break out and I think become kind of a best-selling writer, heavily influenced by all of the new weird work, even has a very underrated new weird novel himself called Trial of Flowers. Um, In terms of next generation, there's an amazing writer, Alistair Rennie, who has a story in this collection. And he, um, who's writing short fiction right now, but will soon be turning to novels. Also, Hal Duncan, although he's a modernist, is definitely influenced by New Weird. In fact, you could say that um, his uh, book Vellum could not have gotten the attention and the sales figures that it did without the New Weird having come first, because it's also very strange, just in a different way. And um, so I think those are a few examples. It's really difficult to predict, you know, this this soon after that moment exactly what effect it will have. But, but again, we see so many writers who email us or, or say, you know, we love having this anthology. We love having these influences at hand now. And as I have said, there there is definitely um, I've said this several places there's definitely kind of a new conservatism coming into genre. I mean, that's the way it works. You know, you get really out there, and then it comes back to the conservative side. But even in that conservative side, in a lot of the heroic fantasy that's on the bestsellers list now, there is definitely an influence of new weird. This is secondary world fantasy where it's a lot grittier. It's a lot um, more realistic than the, the heroic fantasy that you think of in terms of like Tolkien and things like that. And I think that's definitely an influence right there of New Weird. It's not New Weird itself, but it definitely is an influence.
0: You've you, you mentioned the moment. Could you describe the moment, both of you? When when did you realize the moment was upon you? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you can really describe
1: when. Uh, it, it's, it's. I was in the shower. <laughs> when you're in the middle of something like that, you don't recognize it. It's only when you're looking back that you can see it. Mm-hmm. I don't think that anybody knows something when they're in the middle of it.
2: I think I think that's one of the sad things about the Internet discussions that occurred in 2003 because they were kind of cantankerous. But they were basically discussions between brothers and sisters who had more in common than they had, you know, differences. And it would have been great if we could have not been as argumentative and been more, I don't know, supportive of one another because we were all basically doing the same kinds of things. And I, I think that, that one thing this anthology does is, is it's not a steel trap, it's, it's an ongoing discussion. It's like, here's the evidence. We have our theory about it, we present other theories as well in the, in the anthology, but you can form your own opinion, opinion from this because
0: you get enough context. Where did these uh, Internet discussions take place? I mean, wh- what board? Where, where was this? And how, how did they transpire? Was it message boards, email
1: lists? Yeah, this was, this was on the um, the third alternative message board where it started. And I think it was M. John Harrison that put the question out there to begin with. He broached the subject and threw it out there to see what would happen, and then just all hell broke loose. Yeah. Now, we only have a piece of that discussion in here. You can actually—we have a, um, a link in, in the book that tells you where you can see the entire discussion because I think it was, what, 100,000 words or something like that. It was it was huge and long, but we just tried to take um, enough of a, a, the the different things, the different opinions, mm-hmm. and put them together in the book.
2: But you had you had 70 writers, I mean, pretty much everybody who was And anybody, editors and, and publishers. And editors, New York editors, New York publishers, everybody debating this this whole subject. And um, I, I think that... I, I don't know. I, it's funny because, you know, like someone like M. John Harrison will freely say to you, he doesn't really like the idea of the term new weird. And yet he allowed us to reprint his story in this anthology. So at the very least, he feels an affinity to
0: the writers that we've included. So you've created a club. Your, your uh, members uh, don't want to join because it will accept them.
1: Yeah, something like that. <laughs> well, didn't, didn't Woody Allen say that? Yeah. But see, you know, I think that's, that's pretty... Marks.
2: That, that's, I mean, the new, new wave writers fought all the time. Some of them are still mortal enemies today, which is funny because they have so, sim- so many similarities. And you saw that with the decadence. I, I think any writer worth their salt doesn't really believe in joining any organization. You know, there's a sense of you have to kind of be outside of all this and and you want to be unique and you don't want anyone to label you. Well I also
1: think that writers want to have the freedom to be able to write whatever they want without having to worry about labels.
2: But but the thing is too, you know, as an I'm different as an anthologist than as a writer. You know, as an anthologist you have to look at something a different way. And so when we were looking at this project, we had to see if it was viable, if there was actually something there. And regardless of, of how I, as a writer, might have still some reservations about the term, as an anthologist, it was clear there was something there and it was worth
0: doing.
1: And, of course, you want your writers to have a lot of passion, don't you?
0: <laughs> yes, we do. I, <laughs> it makes as, for good fiction. Yes. I, Talk a little bit about the, the importance when we see uh, an anthology of like this or we hear about a movement like this, we hear a lot about the writers and we hear some about the, the editors and, and, for example, yourselves and um, in the new wave it was Michael Moorcock. Um, what other editors uh, helped inform and define the new weird?
1: I would say Peter Lavery at Pan Macmillan was one of the editors um, I would also say um, Juliet Ullman over at Bantam.
2: Yeah, to some degree, Diana Gill over at Eos. Um, but Peter Peter um, Lavery at Pat McMillan in the UK is the guy who really he took the did it all. He was kind with... of the godfather of it because he was the one who took a chance on all these novels, first with China, then with me, then with K.J. Bishop and all these other writers. And I don't think there's a single new weird writer who wasn't published in some form by Peter Lavery first and then... And then, uh, like like Anne said, Juliet Ullman at Bantam, and um, Diane uh, Gill at Eos, and there are others too. I'm, I'm sure I would think of them if I had more time.
0: And this takes us to the next level of the of the chain publishers. What publishers played played a part, and, and how much of a part was played by big name publishers? Like Macmillan is is a big name. There, that's not mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. no small press publishers. But then there were other mm-hmm. small press publishers. I'm thinking of Nightshade and Subterranean and Cemetery Dance, that all probably well, conti- contributed as well.
2: I would say those are, they actually didn't because they were doing more traditional stuff at the time. Um, I would say that it was more um, Prime Books took the chance on most of these books. Prime took a chance on K.J. Bishop, on myself, and on several others, and those then got picked up by Pat McMillan and by Bantam. So Sean Wallace at Prime Books was probably the person most responsible in terms of the indie press, and there were others, obviously. Um, Nightshade did publish uh, Jay Lake's uh, Trial of Flowers, and um, then, of course, uh, the third alternative... um, it's also a magazine, not just a message board, and that magazine published a lot of short fiction. They encouraged the early work of a lot of writers who would go on to do novels. And then also, you know, we were I, I was doing my Leviathan series, which was definitely in this vein. Um,
0: One of the things that I think uh, is true is that uh, we've also seen some of the more uh, literary uh, presses and magazines um Pick up some of some of these ideas, and, and I'm thinking of Michael Chabon's amazing stories mm-hmm. anthology, and and in general, and uh, McSweeney's as well. Yeah, well, I mean, Chabon's
2: been uh, is is definitely a good example of somebody who has crossed over and back and forth the supposed boundary. Um, another I would mention is actually in the anthology Brian Evanson, who is the creative writing director at Brown University, who's been heavily influenced by a lot of genre stuff as well as literary, and is probably one of the most highly regarded short story writers, especially, in the literary mainstream. So there's definitely a a cross connection there between authors. And I know Peter Straub also, although he's known as maybe doing more traditional horror, is definitely another guy who, you know, and also a New York Times bestseller, is a guy who gets away with crossing the fence back and forth between the mainstream and and genre and also commercial and literary, you know, whatever those terms might
0: mean. And, And then taking it out yet another step... Uh, if people are going to uh, get these books, they're going to have to buy them from booksellers. Talk about the, the point, the part that booksellers play. I'm thinking you know, there's a number of independent booksellers um, and there are chains too. I, I know that the buyer for Borders was, I think, uh, if, if it was for a while, was very interested in this kind of fiction.
1: Oh, yes. Uh, the Buyer at Borders has, has been very supportive of the projects that we work on. And uh, in addition, as far as the um, independent bookstores are, are concerned, we just heard a short time ago that this book was going to be a Book Sense pick, I think, in April.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and actually, I would say that like large independents like Book People and Elliott Bay and Powell's, Powell's. have been hugely, hugely supportive and hand-sold hundreds of copies, if not thousands of copies, of some of this kind of literature. But the chains also, you know, they get demonized quite a bit as being very monolithic. But, you know, Misha Hirschman at uh, Borders was absolutely amazing in terms of supporting this stuff. I mean, he he, he was just wonderful. And the guy at uh, Barnes & Noble as well. So, you know, there's definitely just an enthusiasm for something different sometimes.
1: And I think that also proves that if you put it out there and let people know that it's available. They will, they will buy it, but it has to be available to them. And, and having having books like this in the in the big chains right there on the front tables allows them to see it. They'll pick it up and buy it. I mean, the, the, I, I shouldn't be bragging about yeah. my own project, but if you take a look at the cover of this book, it's just gorgeous.
0: And, and uh, one thing I. I, I realized is that we haven't talked about uh, some of the magazines. Obviously, magazines play uh, two parts in, in the creation of a, a literary movement or, or moment. Uh, on one hand, they're publishing the short fiction. On the other hand, they're reviewing the long fiction and pointing readers in a direction that they might not otherwise go. Could you talk about magazines and maybe different review venues um, that, that helped create this moment in genre? Um,
1: well, I mean, again, when you think about the technology today, as opposed to what we had 20 years ago, there's a lot of magazines and venues for reviews that are online now. So you don't just have the print magazines, you also have the online venues as well.
2: But print-wise, I would say Locus Magazine, which is probably like the billboard of, um, of uh, genre uh, or for genre information, um, did a really, really good job. And that's widely influential on booksellers and readers and, and everyone else. I mean, you know, they have a huge subscriber base and are, are read in, in many, many countries. Uh, but I do think that the Internet did help quite a bit. You, you, would have. There's so many different resources that when you ask that question, it's kind of difficult to think, to narrow it down, to remember, <laughs> you know, exactly which ones would have had the most impact. Um, but there's definitely a cross-pollination, too. I mean, like, one writer we didn't have in the anthology but is a new weird, like Brendan Connell. Uh, has had his work in McSweeney's, for example. And it's the same kind of stuff that we have in the New Weird Anthology. Um, So I would say, and also K.J. Bishop just had a piece in the Boston Review. Um, So you begin to see now this kind of cross-pollination the other way around, where it's not New Weird invading genre. (laughs) It's this kind of fiction or literary fantasy, you know, generally, too, that is invading the literary mainstream to some extent.
1: I don't think there's a particular publication out there that that only publishes new weird type fiction. I think that you're going to find it everywhere, as Jeff said, from some of the literary journals. Well, Weird to, Tales to, is now. To, some, to some, the some, more, some more traditional genre magazines. But you're not going to see. I, I don't think there's one magazine out there that every single story in it could be considered new weird. Yeah. Uh, even Even in Weird Tales, I have a mix of a lot of different types of weird fiction coming up, as you will see.
0: Yes, this is something we should talk about, Anne. You're now the editor of Weird Tales, and that's a really great kind of uh, conundrum for you because Weird Tales was where the old weird was created and was defined, yes. and now you find yourself at the helm of a new Weird Tales and at the helm of the new weird movement. Could you talk about <laughs> the, uh, the... Tell us a little bit about the history of Weird Tales because it's been in and out of print. as, as It's kind of like the Doctor Who of... Uh, Science fiction and magazines.
1: Well, I'm really proud to talk about Weird Tales, and I will say that that I was offered the job of fiction editor several months after we had taken on this new weird project. So I'm, I'm not sure maybe that maybe that was good or bad if if they thought that that made me um, in a better position for it. But the, the magazine itself is the longest running fantasy magazine in this country, and we are right now starting next week, as a matter of fact, celebrating the 85th anniversary. That's 85 years, so, so that, that's pretty exciting right there. But this magazine is not just the home of H.P. Lovecraft. It is also the magazine that first published Tennessee Williams. A lot of people don't know that. It also gave a start to people like uh, Ray Bradbury and Robert Block and all kinds of fantastic writers. And um, I, I, I'm truly honored to be the new fiction editor and only the second woman. And that's also something that I'm, I'm very aware of. And uh, I have to tell you that I, I just love what I'm doing because I'm doing my favorite thing in the world, reading fiction. So I've had a great time working on this, and um, my first issue just came out. The second issue... Um, is out actually um, next week it'll be hitting the bookstore so I'm ex- excited about that and then the issue after that is going to be the, the the actual 85th anniversary issue which includes stories from people like Tanith Lee and Michael Moorcock and also new writers such as as Ramsey Shahadi so I'm, I'm very excited about the new writers that I'm I'm bringing out there to the public as well as having an opportunity to read in and select fiction from more established writers
2: but you're also very aware of the of having a balance, right, between the traditional and the more.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. What I'm looking at is I'm I'm taking a look at the audience that I have and the audience that we need to have. I'm looking at um, updating the magazine. If you take a look at the at the new issue, you will see there's a mixture between art and fiction, and we're also getting into graphic novels, putting that type of art in there. And I think that you're going to see a lot of mixing of genres, mixing of different media types together in one magazine to bring it into the 21st century. Weird Tales has always been on the cutting edge of things, back when it started in the 20s and then again when it came out in the 40s, the 50s, et cetera, et cetera. Every single incarnation of Weird Tales has brought it into whatever the modern world was at that time.
0: Could you talk about the influence of uh artwork entirely outside of literature on the new year. You mentioned Alan Clark's uh, art was an inspiration for the silver web and, and mm-hmm. brought in that whole element of the surreal, which I think is a real key element of the new Weird. And I'm wondering if, if uh, the influence of video games and, and other art forms, that things that might not have even five years ago been considered art forms, are playing an influence in the, this literary genre.
2: I think that um, it's definitely true. I mean, my own influences are beginning to turn towards graphic novels. I think that's the great next frontier when it comes to influences from outside of actual fiction for fiction writers. There's been such an amazing, yeah. I mean, I really do think there's like a lot of new weird graphic novels. Everything that humanoid publishers does, uh, publishing does, which is. The largest uh, publisher in France. They were, I think, they partnered with DC for a while. Almost everything they do is I would consider to be kind of new weird. It's like post heavy metal type graphic novels. Um, they even do a lot of stuff by Jodorowsky, um, the guy who directed El Topo and uh, Santa Sangre, and was supposed to do Dune, <laughs> and and he definitely has that kind of sensibility. Um, and and actually, Alistair Rennie, the who has this original story in new in the new weird. Uh, was heavily influenced by these kinds of graphic novels, and so I think that if you if you do see something going forward to <laughs> a next weird, which was meant as a joke, um, you will see it coming from some of these more graphic oriented um, art forms uh, but but surreal art i mean you know I, th- I think that 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 the thing about how that influences new weird is that new weird is very descriptive i mean you read this prose and it's not minimalistic you get a very good idea of where you are it doesn't overwhelm the characters but but it's definitely an integral part of it and so there's a very i don't want to say painterly because that sounds like a careful term but a very visual sense to all of these stories and in some cases i'm sure it's influenced by graphic novels and by surreal art i mean it almost has to be
0: we've been speaking with Anne and jeff vandermeer their new anthology is the new weird thank you for joining me ann and jeff